Welcome back to another episode of Boss Ladies, a podcast about women in business. My name is Julieta, and I will be talking with women who started their own businesses here in Zurich. I wanted to bring the stories to the forefront and shed light on what happens behind the scenes of starting a business. It's time for honest conversations about what it means to be a woman in the 21st century trying to create something on our own. Before we get started, did you know you can subscribe to the podcast? Short and direct answer, yes, you can. So if you haven't done that already, you might as well. And you can do that on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also rate and review, which I highly encourage you to do. I want to hear what you as a listener thinks. So go ahead and press that fifth star and write a little love note. No, kidding. Please be honest and send along some feedback. Or if you don't have feedback, then just write a comment. The space is all yours. My guest today is Britta Kürzi, the woman behind Kürzi Kakao, a bean-to-bar chocolate company. She isn't Swiss, although her name could definitely lead you to think that. She's incredibly passionate about what she's creating, which is a mini empire. And even though she'll warn you about nerd talk when going into specific details of how chocolate is really made, I think it just goes to show how knowledge and passionate she is of what she's doing. Today, we're talking about a whole lot of different topics, which has become common for when we meet and chat. We're discussing her business's purpose, how she wants to make a change, her trip around the world, learning everything you can about chocolate making. And then we're going in deep and discussing overcoming shame, being asked to be normal and what that really does to our mind. Because our conversation was again well over two hours and I would like for you to listen to the entire talk, this will be another two-part episode. And now let's hear part one of my conversation with Britta. Hi. Hello. <laughs> how are you? Good, how are you? I'm fine. I'm really, really excited for this conversation because I know you have a lot to say. And we, when we talk, we end up talking for about four hours and we talk about everything. So this is going to be our challenge for today, to not reach four hours, and, uh, but still talk about everything we want to talk about. Fantastic. I'll Great. try to do my best. <laughs> okay, so my first question is, what is written on your business card? What is written on my business card? Mm -hmm. All that's written on my business card right now is Curtsy Cacao. It does not have an address. It okay. does not have um, more information than, oh, it says Bean to Bar underneath. Okay. And then that is it. That's it? Mm -hmm. Do you have a job title for yourself? Um, officially, I am Geschäftsführerin. Okay. <laughs> and nice. that is uh, what was written on the articles that we incorporated on our Gay and Beha here mm -hmm. in Zurich. Okay. So um, that translates in English to CEO. Nice. <laughs> it's the best job to have, I think, no? Yes, I think so. But if I had to give myself an, a title, I guess it would be uh, Chief Chocolate Maker. And uh, yeah. Okay, so I know you get this question a lot, but how, why chocolate? Yeah, so it's a good question to ask because we live in Switzerland, right? And it's already the land of everyone. When you think of chocolate, you think of Switzerland. Mm -hmm. So I guess I, maybe I should give a bit more background about me before I talk about why chocolate. Because yeah, it might give a bit more 
Um, so tell me. Okay. <laughs> From zero onwards. <laughs> so to start out, my name is Britta Kurtzy, mm-hmm. and I know that that sounds super Swiss, but I it actually does. grew up in a small rural town in mm-hmm. East Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a town that is, uh, it, it, you might know it. Mm-hmm. We have three nuclear labs, and the entire purpose for the creation of this town was so that it would um, create the greatest weapon of mass destruction mankind has ever seen. So we are responsible for the creation of the atomic bomb. Congratulations. (laughs) It is a terrible claim to fame, but... You know, um, I think everyone that grew up in Oak Ridge, and I don't know this for sure, Mm -hmm. but at least myself and others that I know, I think that when you come from a town where you know it was responsible for so much death and destruction and uh, just horrible things in this world, it instills within you a sense of purpose Mm -hmm. to create something beautiful and meaningful and something ultimately that's going to bring joy and goodness into this world. Mm Um, so I left Oak Ridge when I was 18 years old. I continued my journey in the Southeast United States. Mm -hmm. I lived in Asheville, North Carolina, um, for about four years before I moved here to Zurich. Mm -hmm. Asheville, North Carolina is a small little hippie town in the (laughs) middle of rural Southeast United States. Mm -hmm. And, um, that is where I became passionate about craft movements in general. Mm -hmm. So in Asheville, uh, we support local businesses. We um, were all about creating our own products. We were all about buying local. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, it has one of the most craft breweries per capita in the entire United States. So anyway, there was also a craft chocolate company there Mm -hmm. that made really amazing chocolate. Mm -hmm. I moved from Asheville to Switzerland and I was under the impression that I was going to come here and there was, it's, you know, the land of milk chocolate, but I was under the impression that there were going to be so many different options and so many different choices and that there would be little mom and pop chocolate shops on every corner. This was not the case, however. And, um, so I have been vegan also, I should mention for about, you know, four years Mm -hmm. myself. Um, and in Asheville, you could find the mantra was kind of anything you can do, I can do vegan. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) And again, I guess I just thought that that was something that was happening all over the world in New York city when I was going or in Amsterdam, you see a lot of it. And so I thought when I came here, there would be a lot of vegan options of the traditional milk chocolate. And again, that is not what I found. So when I had come here. I did what I call a full Swiss immersion program. Okay. And that was um, in the morning I was taking German classes mm-hmm. and in the afternoons I was, you know, learning how to make chocolate and not just remelting chocolate, but mm-hmm. actually making it from the bean into a bar. Mm-hmm. So does that answer your question? <laughs> do you even remember what you asked me? Yes, I do. Why chocolate? <laughs> um, yeah, the why is I wanted really good vegan milk chocolate I couldn't find it Mm -hmm. I decided to make it myself Mm -hmm. tell me more about the Swiss immersion program yeah um so you know I had taken French in school Mm -hmm. when I was growing up Mm -hmm. from around sixth grade until I was in university Mm -hmm. 
I came really close to needing it because I moved to Switzerland and wouldn't you believe it's one of the national languages, mm -hmm. but I moved to Zurich. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, in the mornings I was at Bilingua Language School, mm -hmm. which is an intensive German language program. Mm -hmm. um, my goal was to become as fluent in German as possible, mm -hmm. as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And so in the mornings from 8 a.m. until around noon, I would be there learning the grammar basics and practicing speaking language. And then in the afternoons, I had enrolled in a Kohl Chocolats Bean to Bar chocolate making program. Mm -hmm. And so every afternoon, I would either be making chocolate myself mm -hmm. or tasting chocolate or learning how to taste chocolate or mm -hmm. learning what makes good chocolate and what makes bad chocolate. Mm -hmm. And so I call it the Swiss immersion program because there's German here and there's chocolate here. Right. How or when did you realize that the chocolate that we're selling here is needs to there needs to be a change there needs to yeah be a change in the industry because it's basically all the same <laughs> yeah i guess um it's one of those things where the more that you educate yourself on something mm -hmm. the more you fall down a rabbit hole mm -hmm. and i guess it was a slow process i mean When you go to a store right now and you look at the chocolate aisle, you will be bombarded with what you believe is a lot of choice. I mean, seriously, if you go into Cope, you will see racks of chocolate, like different types and mm -hmm. different color packaging, and mm -hmm. it seems like there's almost everything. So it feels overwhelming. But if you actually look into who's making that chocolate, it's the same one or two brands that own, let's say, I believe the top five chocolate producing companies mm -hmm. are responsible for around 80% of the sales of chocolate around the world. Mm -hmm. And then here in Switzerland, you have Linton Sprungli and you have Nestle. And so you have even fewer, I guess, mm -hmm. choices that you would think. They just happen to own little brands underneath them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess I just... It was around when I was doing this education and I was learning what like um, real quality chocolate was and I was mm -hmm. learning about the craft chocolate movement. Mm -hmm. That's when I realized that it would be interesting to introduce something new here in Switzerland as well. Yeah. And I'm sure that by saying that the Swiss chocolate isn't as good as it's believed to be, you're pissing off a lot of people in the world. Yeah, it's definitely controversial. Um, and I'm not trying to say that, I, you know, I don't want to be negative about my message. Sure. I don't want to say that Swiss chocolate is bad. Mm -hmm. I think that there is definitely a large consumer base for Swiss chocolate as it exists right now. Mm -hmm. However, I think that there is um, a different type of consumer that is more interested in the quality of the ingredients that are going into the food that they're consuming, mm -hmm. and they want a different product, and I guess I'm biased, but I would say that there is, in my opinion, a better way and a better type of chocolate than what's on the market now. Mm -hmm. So creating chocolate and creating good chocolate what is something that people don't know about the chocolate they're consuming that makes it bad? So again, good and bad, it's all objective. Sure, it's judging, yes. Um, but I will say that what actually, um, the, the consumers in Europe in general, in mm -hmm. Switzerland in general, 
they do have a bit of a better chocolate product that's at the supermarket. Mm -hmm. So if you flip the um, chocolate over and you look on the back side mm -hmm. and it has cocoa butter in it, you're mm -hmm. already ahead of the game than what we were getting in the United States, mm -hmm. which was um, a shortcut that a lot of mass producers of chocolate will make is um, instead of using cocoa butter, they mm -hmm. will use vegetable oil or some other type of cheap fat because cocoa butter is expensive mm -hmm. and they want to save money. Mm -hmm. And so even if you have cocoa butter in it, that's already a selling point for mass manufacturers saying like, look, we have quality cocoa. We actually use the ingredient that's responsible for making chocolate in our mm -hmm. product. So I think that that's a really low bar and a really <laughs> sad bar, but it is one that exists. Mm -hmm. So um, if you turn the ingredients over again and you don't see cocoa butter listed, but instead a different type of fat, you already know that what you're getting is just a mass-produced candy and mm -hmm. not really a quality chocolate. Mm -hmm. You will also have some other hints um, besides the ingredients. You will... If you have to see a lot of ingredients that are listed on the back, oftentimes they are putting these additives in because the cacao that they're using, mm -hmm. which is one of the main ingredients in chocolate, mm -hmm. um, might not be as quality as you would want it to be. Mm -hmm. If they have to add a lot of you know, uh, ingredients that you have trouble pronouncing maybe, it might be to mask the uh, off flavors of the cacao. Okay. So that's another indication that you want to look for. Okay. And what makes your chocolate different? So the way that it works now, and when you're producing chocolate on a massive scale, mm -hmm. you can't be as concerned about the quality of every single bean mm -hmm. that you're using to mm -hmm. make the chocolate. You can't discriminate as much. You're mm -hmm. mass importing oftentimes from either Ghana or Ivory Coast, mm -hmm. and you are going to get those beans in, and you are going to, instead of look at them, see if they're quality, and then you know toss away the ones that aren't up to the standards, you are going to just put them all through a machine, mm -hmm. which is going to clean them, mm -hmm. and then it's going to alkalize them, which is a process which um, adds a little bit of It, it, it makes it less acidic, and mm -hmm. so it takes away the bitter flavor, mm -hmm. and it takes away some of the more off flavors that you would taste, and it makes a really easy-to-palate chocolate, but if you have a really high-quality cacao that you're importing, um, like I am, you don't want to burn these flavors away mm -hmm. because they can be fruity, they can be floral, they can be bright, they mm -hmm. can be citrusy, they can taste like raspberry, they can taste like cranberry. Mm -hmm. And that's not by adding anything into the chocolate that you're making. Mm -hmm. That's just their natural flavor. And you want that, or I want that. But if you're mass producing, again, your goal is to get consistency over quality. And again, you cannot take the time to hand inspect or hand sort every single bean that's going in. So you just need better processes to clean and to alkalize and to do all of that. So that's one thing. Another thing is my chocolate, it's going to be made in a melanger, mm -hmm. which is around 60 kilograms. Mm -hmm. And then it, it's moved directly from that melanger once it's been processed, the raw ingredients, into um, a tempering machine and into bars. If you're making mass, if you're making chocolate on a massive scale, you have these huge industrial sized buildings that mm -hmm. have these giant pipes like mm -hmm. Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory style, mm -hmm. which don't get me wrong, is super cool. But at the same time, if you think about it, how 
if you have a really dark chocolate that's 80% mm -hmm. or that's 90%, and this is something when I've toured these giant chocolate factories, they've told me is a problem. Mm -hmm. How are you going to get that to run through the piping? Because it's gonna be really thick. So the solution to that is to add as much cocoa butter and as much soy lecithin as you can in order to make the chocolate really fluid. I don't know if you know this or not, but do you know what it means when you buy a bar of chocolate and it says 80% cacao on it? I'm assuming it's 80% I don't I can't answer that question. Right? No. So yeah, it means that there's 80% cacao in that, but mm -hmm. that is not just the cocoa mass. So it's not just the, the meat from the cocoa bean. Mm -hmm. It can also include cocoa butter. Okay. So you can buy a dark chocolate that's 80% cacao, but it only uses 12% cocoa mass, and then the rest is cocoa butter. Huh. You can have an 80% cacao white chocolate, actually. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because you can use 80% cocoa butter, in theory. I mean, I don't know how that would end up working in a bar that you temper. I would right. have to play around with that. Mm -hmm. But just legally, what that number means on there is how much cacao inclusive of cocoa butter the bar contains. Okay. And so if you want to get um, these, these products to run through this tubing, you just have to add a lot of fat. Mm -hmm. And so you can't put as much of a focus on... I guess the the meat of mm -hmm. the cocoa bean, the nib of mm -hmm. the cocoa bean, if you will, and so that's a huge difference as well. Okay, so when they have these different percentages written on the package, like 60, 70, 80 percent, we're being told that the higher the percentage, the healthier, and I'm doing air quotation marks, um, the healthier it is for you. Is that true or is that a myth? You can definitely um, use that as a general rule mm -hmm. because if they're not putting the cocoa percentage on it, then it's probably going to be using one of the equations that they gave me for making chocolate. Um, in Belgium and Switzerland, the standard amount and percentage of sugar that you have in a bar of chocolate um, is going to be around 48 to 50%. Okay. And that is in dark chocolate as well. Okay. Um, so if you have a higher percentage of cacao, like 60 or 80%, then you're going to have less sugar, which I guess you can interpret as being healthier. Mm -hmm. um, because I don't consider fat to be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Sugar is probably worse for you than fat. And so, I mean, it just depends on what your nutrition goals are. But mm -hmm. you really have to look at the nutritional label because I don't think they're going to break it down for you, mm -hmm. how much cocoa mass they're using, how much... well. Actually, when they're making dark chocolate, a lot of times on a massive scale, they will add a lot of cocoa butter and then they will add cocoa powder mm -hmm. because if they just use too much cocoa mass, like I said, it'll get stuck in the piping. So mm -hmm. it's really hard to know, you know, what, like when you're yeah. buying a, a mass produced product, it's, um, there are little things that they can do to market it so that it sounds similar to mm -hmm. like an artisan product that you would buy mm -hmm. from, from someone like myself. Mm -hmm. However look at the back of the ingredients and look at the nutritional label and make that determination and whether or not you trust that company yourself and mm -hmm. if you think that this is a healthy product. Mm -hmm. um, cocoa itself mm -hmm. is considered a superfood. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it tastes amazing. And I definitely think that there are chocolates out there that can be part of like a healthier diet. But I don't know that you will really get a healthy chocolate from a mass-produced 
company that has to do it on an industrial scale. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense. What to you is the hardest part of making chocolate? So I have the whole process down. Mm -hmm. Once I get the beans, um, I guess the hardest part to start out was definitely finding good ethical sources from which I could buy my beans that have not only high standards when it comes to quality, mm -hmm. but also high standards in terms of are they paying the people that are creating these crops a good rate? Mm -hmm. And um, in deciding, you know, which 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 area of the world do you want to focus on when you're importing beans to start out? So. That was the hardest part as I was starting out. And then the next hardest part was getting roasting down. Mm -hmm. Once you get these beans in, um, I, I will need to roast them. And I need to roast them in... There's a lot of science that goes behind it. A lot of science that even when you um, talk with scientists in, at Ghent University in Belgium, mm -hmm. they do not fully understand what's going on. They mm -hmm. can just record the data that's happening. Mm -hmm. But you want to roast it enough so that the flavor of cocoa comes out, but not too much so that you burn off the delicate notes mm -hmm. that are floral or fruity mm -hmm. in the cocoa bean. Mm -hmm. um, not every bean that you import has the potential of having floral or fruity notes. It depends yep. on the region in which it was grown. Mm -hmm. It depends on the climate in which it was grown. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, it it really depends on how it was fermented and handled as soon as it was harvested. Okay. So, um, yeah, there are, there are a lot of factors to consider before you even get to the roasting that mm -hmm. you have to really kind of um, make sure that your partners that you're importing your beans from are doing a good job and their due diligence on their end to properly ferment and dry the cocoa beans. But yeah, roasting would be the hardest part once it gets to my door. Mm-hmm. You mentioned ethically sourced. Where do you source your ingredients from? So right now, um, with the first three bars that I'm going to be launching in fall, mm -hmm. all of my beans come from Tanzania. Okay. There is a co-op called Coco Camilli, mm -hmm. run by Simran, and he has set up this fermentary where they go to uh, the farmers and they collect the cocoa beans wet and then they bring those and they ferment and dry them at their location uh, there themselves. This probably, I just realized, sounds very confusing to someone that doesn't understand the process. Like, <laughs> you're probably sitting there like, what does this mean? So, good question. Um, <laughs> I love it, you're asking yourself questions. My job is done. <laughs> so, okay. So basically, um, there are, millions of farmers mm -hmm. and you can't go and educate every single farmer on how do you properly ferment a cocoa bean mm -hmm. because if you're a farmer you're like um i don't care are you gonna buy my product or not like right. they're not eating the chocolate right now so they don't care they're like just what do you want so <laughs> this is what's happening though in in ghana and the ivory coast mm -hmm. like the big buyers nestle berry calvert they're saying like we need these beans that we're importing to be fermented mm -hmm. but they're not really like educating them on best practices for fermenting these beans mm -hmm. so what the farmers in Ghana and the Ivory Coast are doing right now is they will harvest the pods mm -hmm. off of the cocoa tree so first of all a cocoa 
a cocoa bean mm-hmm. is a seed inside of a cocoa pod, mm-hmm. which is a fruit that grows on a tree. Got it. And it grows plus or minus uh, plus or minus twenty degrees from the equator. Okay. 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 So now, now, got, now got that we've picture. got that picture out. Okay. <laughs> so then these trees are on farms, um, and around. Uh, I don't remember the exact percentage, but it's something ridiculous, like 80% or more of the cocoa in the world comes from Ghana and Ivory Coast. Okay. The farmers there are told the beans that are being imported need to be fermented, mm-hmm. 80% fermented, mm-hmm. otherwise they're not good or quality. Mm-hmm. So what the farmers are doing is they harvest the pods mm-hmm. and then they leave them maybe sitting there for, I don't know how many days. Um, I mean, I was told that sometimes they, it takes around seven days to even get to them. Mm -hmm. So then you have like these, these seeds inside of these cocoa pods, essentially rotting for like a week, um, which is not good. Then the farmers will come and none of this is the farmer's fault, by the way. Okay. This is because the burden of fermenting is being put on them when it really shouldn't be. Right. So then the farmers will go and then they will get to the pods and they will crack them open and then they will put these seeds from these pods Mm -hmm. into a big pile on top of banana leaves. Okay. And then they put some banana leaves over this and then they leave that for like a week or so. Okay. And then they might stir it around every now and then because you're supposed to... But, like, they're not being, you know, like, watched like Big Brother. It's not, like, a check. So they might not. It doesn't really matter Uh because it's not, again, it's not about fermenting these to get, like, these super high-quality beans with this fruity flavor or this really interesting, um, delicate flavor profile. It's Mm -hmm. just about making sure that they're fermented so that when they're roasted, they will taste like cocoa, like the chocolate that we expect. Got it. So that's what's happening there. Mm Mm-hmm. Coco Camilli, what they do is, you know, they have all these farmers throughout Tanzania that are growing cacao, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily know, um, oh, box fermentation is now the best way of fermenting cocoa. They don't have the money to invest in these uh, fermentation boxes, and they don't have the time. I mean, honestly, it is such hard work to do this, mm-hmm. to not only grow cacao, but also harvest it. Mm-hmm. And... They are carrying these like 60 kilogram bags of pods around. Like, why? Are, they should not have this burden on them in the first place. So, Coco Camilli will go to the farmers. Mm-hmm. They will take the harvested cocoa seeds wet. Mm-hmm. Once they've been for once they've been harvested, they will take them to a fermentary and then they do the entire process themselves. Okay. Which is, it starts in a box. Mm-hmm where it is fermented for two days. Mm-hmm. It needs to be anaerobic. Mm-hmm. And so there is no air introduced during this time because it needs time to combine with like this bacteria and this yeast. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, I'm asleep right now listening to this podcast. No. Who is this nerd? <laughs> Who is this nerd talking about this? But yeah, so it just needs time to like have all this science stuff going on. And so then after two days, there's no more potential for, for like it just... Nothing, without air being introduced, the sciencey stuff can't happen anymore, for mm-hmm. lack of a better way of explaining mm-hmm. it. So then it'll be stirred and go into the second box, mm-hmm. sit there for two days, mm-hmm. then it goes to the next one for one day. So then after that, the beans will be dried and then they're imported here. So okay. it's a bit of a difference between what's happening in Ghana, Ivory Coast, mm-hmm. and what they're doing down at Coca Camilli. Okay. Oh, and did I mention? No. <laughs> did I mention? Fun fact. <laughs> 
<laughs> that they're paying the farmers more for their beans wet than what uh, farmers in Ghana and Ivory Coast are getting paid right now for their beans dried. No. Yes, they are. They're paying more to the farmers and they're taking the burden of the fermentation process off of the farmers. Okay. So the farmers are better off, mm -hmm. but we're as consumers better off. Sure, yeah. Because we're able to get a higher quality, better product mm -hmm. and the farmers are able to focus on what they do best and mm -hmm. that's making sure that you know their crops aren't being infested by disease. So you just explained a really scientific process which means you either have seen this firsthand or you just did a shit ton of research to get there. Why not though? <laughs> there we go. And I know you went on a really long trip to know everything there is to know about making chocolate about cocoa beans and all of this so do you want to tell me a little bit about a where you went and b why you went there yes yes so i had um with the bean to bar program that i had done with the cola chocolate they walked us through literally every single step of this process that i just described mm -hmm. in very scientific terms to um to let us i mean so That was the research portion, but I realized that I'm a very hands-on and visual learner mm -hmm. and I learn better by actually experiencing things and seeing them firsthand myself. So I had decided to spend some time on cocoa farms actually seeing this firsthand and learning about this in a hands-on way. Um, I had wanted to go to Tanzania, obviously, because that's where I'm importing my beans from. But it was uh, when I had the time to do this, unfortunately, the wet season in Tanzania. And so there would have been no cocoa beans. It's just, it was bad timing mm -hmm. there. So I had learned about um, another fermentary that does the same thing that Cocoa Camille is doing. But they're doing it in the Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. And they were hosting chocolate makers from all around the world. Mm -hmm. And I thought... Ah, this is great because not only will I see the same process that Coco Camille is using, mm -hmm. I will also get to meet chocolate makers from around the world mm -hmm. and learn about you know what's worked for them, what hasn't worked for them, what's their market like. Um, and so that was in the Dominican Republic mm -hmm. at a fermentary called Zorzal. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I had um, I had gone to Costa Rica, mm -hmm. and that was just sort of freestyle okay. visiting cocoa farms mm -hmm. because I wanted to see, um, I just wanted to meet some farmers and mm -hmm. see what their perspective was, what their challenges were, mm -hmm. and I don't know, just see how it looks on a small scale farm that's not working with one of these centralized fermentaries, which really instilled in me that what these fermentaries are doing, taking the burden off of the farmers and um, you know fermenting and doing the drying process themselves, it's like a huge huge value added service and again it standardizes these fermentation protocols which means that we're always going to get great chocolate mm -hmm. because it's not just sitting in banana leaves who knows how many days right then i went to nicaragua mm -hmm. and i was at ingeman fine cacao institute mm -hmm. and what they're doing is really interesting okay so It's very controversial in the chocolate world, but okay. I, I love a good controversy. Yes, <laughs> we do too. <laughs> so, for a long time, it's been accepted that there are three types of cocoa beans. Mm -hmm. Forestero, mm -hmm. Trinitario, mm -hmm. and Criollo. Mm -hmm. Criollo is like 
mm, the Rolls Royce or Cadillac or what is the highest, like Porsche. Rolls Royce would be the most expensive. Here we go. The Rolls Royce of cocoa beans. Okay. Um, Forestero has been your mom's old beat up pickup truck. Sorry, I come from the southeast. That's so showing. What <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is in Swiss terms the the Forestero? It's it's just one of your your reliable vehicles yeah. that's so that's like thirty years old. It's thirty years old. But there's nothing special about it, but it gets the job done. It'll deliver you that cocoa flavor, but it's not going to give you any type of luxury. Luxury. Got it. And then there's Trinitario, which is a a genetic mix between these two. Okay. And so for a long time, what I had just said to you was Mm -hmm. accepted as the truth and the reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. Forestero means, you know, boring and uninteresting and... And not as flavorful, but Criollo is like, wow, so much potential for flavor. Mm-hmm. Ingeman Fine Cacao Institute, they tend to disagree a bit with this. And okay. so this is very controversial in the cocoa community. But they think that the fermentation protocols that are being used mm-hmm. are more important than the genetic potential of the cocoa bean itself. Got it. And so they've been experimenting with... Um, the same cocoa beans, different fermentation protocols, and creating different flavor profiles just based on how long and what different rotation strategies they use for fermentation. So they'll have like the same set of beans, Forestero, and they have one that's a nutty variety just based on fermentation, and then they have one that's like a super fruity red fruit variety. And their theory is that fermentation is way more important than genetic uh, genetic potential. So that's that's shaking things up a bit. I met a guy the next stage. I was in Belgium at Ghent University mm-hmm. at the Cacao Lab, and I met a guy that was doing similar research because he's working a lot with the farmers in Ghana, and he wants to show that Forestero has more flavor potential than what people think right now. Mm-hmm. And he says that he is not having an easy time with it because people do not like it when new research shakes up the standard quo. So anyway, um, yeah, then I ended my trip in Belgium as I had mentioned Mm -hmm. and I wanted to get more of an industrial perspective and education on chocolate making Mm -hmm. because throughout this process I had gotten like the small mom and pop artisan craft chocolate community, why small matters, why is it good to be artisan, but I didn't want to just accept this as as reality. I wanted to see for myself how is chocolate produced on an industrial scale? Mm-hmm. What are their advantages? Mm-hmm. What are their limitations? Mm-hmm. And that is why I was educated in Belgium at Ghent University at the Skakai Lab where we visited some of the biggest manufacturers of mm-hmm. chocolate in all of Europe and all of the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to say, it's really, really cool to see these like industrial size Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory places, but they will admit themselves, there are definite limitations to being that size. And when you want a real quality, uh, single origin, fine cacao product, you've got to go small. Mm-hmm. You talked about purpose before. Mm-hmm. What is your purpose with this company? So I believe that, I believe in a future where 
We will not need to exploit humans or animals in order to create products for food, clothing, or other basic needs that humans have. It's a very radical notion right now, mm -hmm. but I don't believe that that will always be the case. I want to help create this world that I believe will be the future mm -hmm. by making a product that uses high-quality plant-based ingredients, all ethically sourced and fairly paid for. And the product, one that I've been talking a lot about already on this podcast, <laughs> and one that Swiss people already are familiar with and love, is chocolate. Mm -hmm. I know we've talked about it previously in conversations. We talked about being the change, how this is the generation that sees the issues that we're having in the world, regardless of what the area is. So how would you like to see yourself be the change? I believe that in this capitalistic society in which we live, mm -hmm. every single dollar that we spend is a vote to either perpetuate the violence and cruelty and destruction of the planet, or it is a vote to change this world for the better into something kinder, into something beautiful, into this world that I don't think I'm naive to want. No. And I'm doing that and I'm being the change by providing a product that I think will recruit people to my cause through taste. It's really simple and eloquent. I like it. I can't even respond to that. <laughs> also, my foot fell asleep. I need to grab the chair. <laughs> oh, God. Do you want to sit on, on the yeah, couch I'll come and sit I, with you? Yeah, I think that makes sense. So much good stuff like I'm trying to like keep up with everything I, I feel like if you put the nerd stuff at the beginning everyone's just gonna tune out so like maybe like cut that away <laughs> no, we're not cutting that away or just add it to the end like we can oh, wait, sprinkle no, it what you should do is just be like um nerd alert <laughs> like for everyone interception <laughs> for everyone that does not like nerdy stuff please close your ears now skip or skip two minutes skip, yeah exactly or just add it at the end and be like okay so now we're gonna get into like the nerd talk of chocolate like if you want that come here what are you most proud of mm. when it comes to my business or yourself your business however you'd like to answer it <sighs> So, I don't talk a lot about this, okay. um, but I guess what I'm most proud of is my ability to overcome hardships that I've had in my life. My entire family has had an issue, different, different people up and on, with um, addiction to alcohol. And I noticed this in myself when I was struggling with... Uh, with an identity loss after I had stopped playing soccer at university. And anyway, I was able to overcome this addiction to alcohol. I'm still doing that today. And I guess that would be the most, the thing that I'm most proud of. I don't know if that's even the thing that I'm most proud of. Probably more than that, the ability to overcome an alcohol addiction, it's like great. But when you're able to help other people going through the same thing, that's even better. And I guess going through this process, I have been able to reach out to others that are struggling with the same issue that I struggled with myself. And I've been able to mentor them. And it has absolutely nothing to do with my business and nothing to do with uh, Curtsy Cacao. But it is one of the 
best feelings that I think that a person can have is going through hell and surviving and then helping someone that is going through that same thing. If you want to go in depth with it, um, have you been able to make a change within your family structure who there's people that go through this issue or has that been the hardest thing to just watch them deal with it and not being able to help them in any way? Yeah, so the best way to make to inspire change in others is by living that yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I have been able to help a family member through the same issue, but at the end of the day, it is a deadly disease and one that 90% um, of people will never overcome. Mm -hmm. At least with the current uh, recovery programs that we have now that are based in shame and guilt, it's, it's, it's not effective, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So I've had to except that I cannot change or, or inspire change in every single family member. Um, it's easier to be here and, and rather than actually there and witnessing it, but there are family members that have been able to be inspired by what I've done and they've come out the other end better. And even if you change just one person's life or one family member's life to me, that's amazing. You talked about shame. Um, are you ashamed or were you ashamed? Yeah, I was definitely ashamed. I do not feel ashamed anymore. Mm -hmm. I feel like when you're first going through this process, you think, why me? Like, what does it mean about me? Um, does it mean that something's wrong with me? Or does it mean that I'm not, I don't have control like other people do? Or what is, what does it say? And so then there's a lot of shame and self-hate and it's really, it can get into a negative cycle and that doesn't go away just because you stop drinking, um, just because you give up your vice. That little voice that was always being negative to you and, and saying those horrible things to you, it doesn't go away overnight. And so it's a process. Whenever you go through a recovery, it's a, it's a whole process. But I'm at a stage right now in my recovery where I feel empowered by the fact that I overcame this huge thing. It's like life threw this awful thing my way and I was like, okay life, like let's fucking go. Mm -hmm. And now I'm here talking about it. I, like I said, I've been able to mentor others and inspire their change. And um, I, I just hope to help end the stigma against addiction to alcohol it's a legal drug that anyone can go and buy it's not like I was buying it on a shady street corner or right. something um, it was just something that I was introduced to and I it has nothing to do with what is your age what is your gender what mm -hmm. is your class it affects all ages all genders all classes and there should be no stigma to it but unfortunately there is still a bit of a stigma which exists and yeah Hopefully that will, hopefully that will change. Because you're from the U.S., um, you legally can start drinking alcohol at 21 years old. Yet you can drive and go to the military and buy a gun when you're <laughs> a lot younger. <laughs> Did that age restriction have something to do with? 
perhaps trying alcohol earlier because it was forbidden because it said no you have to be 21 so when we're told as humans no you can't have it that's when we really say oh now I want it because I can't have it was that a big trigger yeah you know I think that there's definitely a huge cultural issue in the United States when it mm -hmm. comes to our relationship with alcohol in general because I mean the mentality when I gave up alcohol when I was there was I mean why don't you just binge drink like the rest of us like a normal oh person yeah <laughs> it's like work hard play hard it's a very toxic uh, mentality toward alcohol in general but yeah what the what you were saying about it being a forbidden fruit, I mean, come on. I was so rebellious as a teenager. Like, this just was another thing where it was like, yeah, like, I don't know, something to rebel against, to be, to do something cool or dangerous, mm -hmm. you know, it was seen as cool. I mean, it's not cool for like 15 or 16 year olds to go mm -hmm. and buy uh jack daniels and get drunk <laughs> together but we had thought it was because it was i don't know maybe that forbidden fruit aspect but i don't think it was just my small town in east tennessee that was doing this i think it's unfortunately quite the case in a lot of a lot of the u.s that mm -hmm. this either don't do it at all or completely binge why always these extremes? That's what I don't understand. You have the either go all out or not doing it at all, but there's no healthy balance. And I feel that's the case with a lot of things. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it, it's the mentality. It's the culture in the United States in general. Um, it's just how it is. It's like work hard and play hard. Everything has to be an extreme. People brag about not sleeping. People brag about not yeah. taking vacation. I mean, like, this is a psychotic and sick society. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is Say not it. okay. No, it's um, not. And so, yeah, there has to... At some point, there has to be a breaking point where people are just like, this is enough. Like, mm -hmm. this is not how it should be. And what I love about you know, Switzerland and Europe in general is people here seem to value their work-life balance way more than back in the United States. I don't know if there's still a bit of this mentality here where, you know, it's like the work hard, play hard. I think so. I haven't experienced it on such an extreme and psychotic level as I did back right. in the United States. Right. But... I'm, I don't know, as we have a global economy and as, you know, mentalities in the U.S. become, you know, prevalent here too, I'm sure it exists. I don't, I don't know, maybe you can tell me more. I mean, I see it in the finance industry, um, especially, and that's the biggest industry that's here in Switzerland where, yeah, I've, and it's always men. I don't know, yeah. We're going to laugh. We don't want to, you know, gender stereotype. But it's every time I talk to a guy who worked in finance or is working in finance, it's always like, yeah, and then we have these parties and you have to go and you have to do this and you always have to work at all times and work never stops. And I work overtime and I'm thinking, yeah, cool. And... Yeah. Why are you so proud of that? I mean, it's great if you really have a purpose and you see meaning behind your work and you want to give it all you have. But for God's sake, live a little. And Yeah, I mean, so I have a 
theory that it just comes from this place of insecurity mm-hmm. and there's a lot of like pressure being put on people in the United States there's a lot of pressure being put on men here in this society that your worth is tied to how much you work mm-hmm. are you grinding mm-hmm. are you hustling oh, God. <laughs> and if you are then somehow you are more valuable or you're worth more or and this leads to I guess like a toxic culture whether it be toxic masculinity mm-hmm. or what we're what we what I experienced in work culture in the United States where everyone just always brags about these things, which it's like, why are you bragging about having a lower quality of life? It's funny that you said that. Um, I just read it in the book I gave you, um, Daring Greatly from Brene Brown, where she has these exact stereotypes written down for male and female where men, since they're boys, they're being told through, whether it's their parents or in movies and TV shows and music that the man has to work hard and he has to be aggressive and assertive and, you know, power. Um, And the woman is told to be as perfect as she can be and thin and beautiful and not be, you know, too assertive or powerful or have ambition. She needs to, you know, stay in her place. Today we can say we're starting to break these barriers finally because there, no, you don't need to be assertive and powerful and objectifying as a guy and you don't need to feel like work is everything you have in life. Because you can be emotional, you can, you can live your life to the fullest without having to follow these weird stereotypes. And the same for a woman. No, you don't have to be thin and perfect and, you know, be quiet and a mouse and... No, for God's sake, I don't know who came up with these ideas, but yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I think I was raised to be like a toxic man. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) Okay. I don't know. I had two brothers. I was the middle child and I don't think they knew how to raise a girl. Okay. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a time when it was, like, girl power, like, uh-huh. uh, Spice Girls were super big, and <laughs> Mia Hamm was my idol. I don't know if you watched women's soccer and stuff. And so, yeah, I thought that part of being one of these girl power women was acting kind of like a toxic man. Like, I had to be powerful, I had to be assertive, and I had to be ambitious, mm-hmm. which is a weird twist on an old stereotype. Mm-hmm. But as I was you know, growing up and um, exploring some of these ideas that I had when I was younger of what, like, feminism was and what, you know, being a strong, powerful woman was, I realized I had some toxic views myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that it might be, it may or may not be prevalent with with other people in, uh, in the world today, but, you know, part of being a feminist is just you know, loving women mm-hmm. and accepting that they can do whatever they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just had this idea that, you know, to be like a feminist icon, you just had to be Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like <laughs> doing everything, like the superwoman. Like uh-huh. you had to be strong, assertive, powerful, but you also had to be like a mother that's like, 
you know, raising this child that's amazing. And mm-hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong, RBG is like, ooh, like I would love to be like her, but um, we don't have to expect all women to be this way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't even know why I got on that tangent, but it's fine. Um, do you think it's maybe easier for someone to be raised as <laughs> I'm not gonna say toxic, but <laughs> an assertive man as a woman? rather than having parents who aren't haven't broken through the barrier and are still raising their girls as you know you need to you have your place and you need to be quiet and you don't need to voice your opinion all the time and I have to be honest like I feel really lucky being raised Mm -hmm. to always voice my opinion like I had a little attitude ever since I was a small child and my (laughs) mom and my dad were just like fly baby fly like (laughs) like and it was really awesome they encouraged me to speak out Mm -hmm. Uh, they encouraged me to speak out uh, for what I believed to be right like Mm -hmm. when I was in high school they thought I was going to get kicked out of high school because I was student council president and we were trying to pass the gay straight alliance and the teachers didn't want it but I ignored them and went forward with it anyway because even though they turned my microphone off I had the whole student audience <laughs> I can and picture I was like no we're gonna vote on this and then you know everyone in the student audience voted for the gay straight alliance and I was as the student council president the official decorum said mm-hmm. I could declare it as a club Oh, I got in really big trouble, <laughs> but, <laughs> and, and like, my parents were like, you already have a scholarship to college, like, what are you doing? But they're like, you know what, you, you, you do you, you believe, you've always been this way, we can't calm, we can't tame this, this person that you are, so, yeah, I don't know, if I had not been raised with parents that are okay with me being that way, I just can't even imagine how hard that would be. It's like it's like someone telling you to not be you. To not be you. Mm-hmm. And every time I've tried to not be me, I have really failed. It just does not work. It doesn't. It doesn't. Have you ever been, not through words necessarily, but through action or through the lines been told not to be you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, when I was in college, I was dating a guy for quite some time, and you know, his parents were very, very conservative, mm-hmm. Southern Baptist in rural Georgia. Mm-hmm. And um, like, if you know anything about evangelical Southeast United oh, States. <laughs> you can kind of imagine what I'm picture like what yeah. I'm describing now. Yeah. They were very very conservative mm-hmm. and I was constantly being reminded that I needed to not be myself whenever we were visiting these people and I was also told because I was at University of Georgia which is in Athens which is also progressive compared to the outside. Mm-hmm. I was also told by many people to like calm down my attitude there. I remember a guy one time was talking to me for maybe 30 seconds before he told me that I was too pretty to have the opinions that I had and to slow my roll. At the end of the day, many people have tried to 
I guess, tell me how I should behave. And they've requested that maybe I mute myself a tiny bit. But what I've learned is to surround myself with people who accept me for who I am and are okay with me being who I am rather than wanting to mute me or change me or make me into what they want me to be. Everyone will have a version of you that they prefer, um, but you want to be with the people that you belong with, not that you fit in with. Speaking of Brene Brown. I was just gonna go there. (laughs) (laughs) I've never written down. Was it mostly men? Or did you have women that told you the same thing? I'm trying to think of a time. Okay, my Aunt Kim, for example, she Mm -hmm. would tell me to be more ladylike, but, you know, she's Aunt Kim. (laughs) Um, But for the most part, it was men that would Mm -hmm. would say this, but in the context of romantic relationships, Mm -hmm. actually, quite frequently. Mm -hmm. Um, Other than my Aunt Kim. Yeah. Because I have the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I was told to be normal, whatever the hell normal means, it's not like I, you know, compete in BMX and... <laughs> but even if you did, that'd be so but, cool. <laughs> Let me take that up after I <laughs> finish with podcasting. I'll move into BMX sports. I mean, one time I was riding an ATV and I didn't realize I had the emergency brake on and I set it on fire. <laughs> I jumped off right in time where it burst into flames. I wish I had this on tape. It's like such a badass vision, right? No, but that really happened in Minnesota. (laughs) You can be a redneck anywhere in the United States. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've been to Kentucky. That's about as Midwest as I'll go. And I think I've seen the entirety of the the middle of America. That was the last time I ever went there. It was Mm -hmm. very strange. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But back to being normal. What is normal? How, what does society define as normal? What do you think? I mean, I wish I knew. Um, I think, I think when people want you to be normal, they want you to just accept the status quo Mm -hmm. as it is today. Mm -hmm. But I am, I don't believe in just accepting the status quo because it's a status quo. I believe in doing what's right. And that means following your intuition when it comes to, um, you know, what, what makes the most sense to you. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I mean, okay. I like tradition in a way because mm-hmm. um, it ties us to the past in a, in, a, in a good way. But I think that we should bring tradition into the future because mm-hmm. if we look at history, people were not always great. And, <laughs> and if that's what you want to continue, I mean, ask yourself why. Right. What do you think normal is? I don't, dude, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would honestly, I would love to know. Sometimes I feel like it could be beneficial to be normal in order not to always have to be criticized. Mm-hmm. Um, I've struggled with it pretty much since I was a little kid. Like you, I've always had an attitude. 
sometimes a little too much, but that's just who I was. And I was always told to be quiet and to, you know, put myself in place and rein it in. And like you, men that I've um, had lovingly relationships with <laughs> have told me the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And it was also, I mean, now where I've started my own company, um, it's also being tied into work where if I say I'm self-employed, they're like, can't you do something normal? Can't you be like everyone else and not have to be weird and not have to follow whatever crazy dream you have that makes no money? And I say no, because that's, I can't sit in a cubicle from nine to five and I've, I've had jobs, I've had the normal job, and um, the last one I was bullied for two and a half months, where it took me a lot of time to get back my mental health. So no, I don't want to be normal, I, why, why should I sit in an office job doing whatever admin stuff they give me? Why can't I be a photographer? Why can't I have humor? My God, I have such black humor. And yeah, I think in one-liners and yeah, sometimes it comes in handy and I entertain people. Sometimes it's a little like, read the room. <laughs> I know that feeling. But that's who I am. And when I have to feel like I have to rein it in, then I know I'm not myself. I know I can't convey whatever I'm trying to convey. And I know it's really hot. We're both sweating. <laughs> um, and then I just feel even more depressed when I have to pretend to be someone, when I can't make jokes, when I can't laugh. And that takes all the fun out of life. And you only have one. So why... Why be something that you're not? Why do something that you don't like? Because you could die tomorrow and then what? You're going to regret everything you've done? Uh-uh. No, that's not my vision of life at all. Thank you for listening and thank you again, Britta. Even if you're not a chocolate lover, this episode will still teach you something about a product that represents an entire country. It will also make you rethink how we produce and consume in today's day and age. Britta's introspective trip to different cacao farms and learning about the harvesting, fermenting, roasting, and eventually mixing of chocolate, I genuinely hope I'm describing this correctly, was fascinating to me. I now know exactly how her product is made, and furthermore, I know her purpose behind why she started Kurzi Cacao, and how it will hopefully change perspectives, change the industry and change your mind about chocolate because hers tastes a whole lot different than the regular bars that you buy in grocery stores. If you already have questions or want to drop us a line, please don't hesitate to write to us. You'll be able to find all the profiles and website links in the show notes. We'll hear each other again next week with part two, which will be less business and more personal. <laughs> So make sure you're subscribed and come back in a week. See you next time.